Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is episode 7 of 2003 with me, Nicholas Beer-Lumblad, and... I, I think it's 2023, Nicholas, actually. We're having a little 2003, time 2003, 2023. You know, it could work both ways. And, um, and with, yes, with me, Richard I'm, Allen. Uh, I feel much younger now, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Okay, 2023. We'll let this go in here just to sort of uh, highlight how confused I am. <laughs> and I should know when it's time to quit which is what we're going to talk about today so so enlighten us what's the what's the theme of today's episode well it's sort of it's been triggered by a book that you recommended to me um a book called quit the power of knowing when to walk away by annie duke um and we'll dig into sort of what it says but it, it does seem to me there's some really interesting lessons there for people like us that work in policy world so this is an episode where we'll mm. talk about what it's like to work in in public policy and one of the um key things that one can get wrong i think in public policy is to keep persisting with a particular course of action when it's no longer the most useful and so i think today mm. we want to sort of explore that how do you how do you recognize uh when you're pursuing the wrong course of action when you should perhaps be quitting uh what are the the sort of biases and things that keep you pursuing that track and that's what Andy Duke writes about she helps us to understand all of these forces at play that, that keep us yeah. going when we really shouldn't go and 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 really what are some te- sort of techniques and tips that you can use to try and recognize when it is that you need to quit and change course so the book is, it starts with quite a, a grim chapter where she chronicles all of the people who are strewn over Mount Everest in different places because they didn't know when to quit. And <clears throat> to some degree, you can argue that the metaphorical uh, Mount Everest is the legislative process worldwide, where where a lot of companies' initiatives are strewn uh, by the wayside and uh, have simply never taken hold. But so why? So you mentioned this in the introduction. There, there seems to be a certain uh, premium on persistence. We all think it's great to say, you know, they persisted, they had grit, which is the other side of quit. Mm. But why, why do you think um, it's so hard for a policy campaign to stop? To simply yeah. say, no, this is not working. Because I can't I remember from you know my career, anytime we just said, no, this isn't working, we just need to stop and find another way. And I, I really tried to sort of remember if there was any concrete examples of where we all consciously said, wrong approach. And yes. unless there's been an external shock, I think it's very rare. No, I think you absolutely raised the external shock. So I'm, I'll, I think there are two, two sort of major factors that are in play. One, one is what they call the sunk cost fallacy, that you've invested a lot in something and therefore your instinct is to keep investing. Oh my God, if I stop doing that, that was wasted investment, investment time and, and energy. And in many cases, actually real money uh, as a public policy team. And the second is this, uh, this sort of question of identity that you start to bind your identity into a particular way of working and and it's really hard then to say well I'm going to change my identity I'm going to be someone different from the person I've been pushing myself out of so that sort of sunk cost and the intertwining of your identity I think are two of the major factors that keep us 
going down a particular path, even when it no longer makes sense. And, and this is an example of where your greatest strength becomes your greatest weakness, because to some degree, we actually really want people who identify with what they're advocating for. Uh, it, we've talked before about the difficulty of advocating for something you don't believe in and why the mercenary version of public policy, which is often what people think that public policy is, guns for hire, it doesn't really work. So <clears throat> you want somebody who believes in what they're advocating for. But if they do, that belief has to be rooted in something, a story about themselves, has to be rooted in their identity, right? So how do you how do you get to a point where where you're not too closely identifying with the cause you're advocating for in such a way that you can draw on that strength because it's great if you're if you have sort of this belief in what you do and yet still not get caught in sunk cost. Yeah, I, th I think to a certain extent it's, it's about being dispassionate whilst being passionate. <laughs> so it's, a, it's really hard. So you want to get... We're becoming be really... masters here, I feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to be really passionate about the thing, but you want to be dispassionate when it comes to observing. And actually lots of the examples she gives are, are um, people in business where they've created a business. It's their baby, you know, and they are passionate about building this business. But you need to be dispassionate and ruthless when it comes to making a decision as to whether or not that business is going to succeed. The fact that you love it and your love comes through is not sufficient. If other people don't love it enough uh, and they're not willing to pay for it, then it's just not going to go anywhere as a business. It's, it is weird to try and maintain those two things at the same time. We tend to be more unidirectional. Either we're just being sort of cold analytical creatures looking at something we don't care about. Or if we care about it, we find it hard to be cold and analytical. <clears throat> and I think that's, you know, across all aspects of our lives. But if there's a trick, it's um, what you take you through. Success sort of is based on not, not, not becoming so cold and analytical that you don't care about the thing, but being very cold and analytical about setting yourself criteria, for example, for when you will change course or when you're going to decide that something isn't working, however passionate you are about it. And it also seems to be important to be passionate about the right thing. There's this notion of means and ends. So, so if you're passionate about uh, a particular solution, and I see this happen often, that people say, this is the only right way to do this. So uh, let's take an example from internet history that will date us, network neutrality. Yes. So network neutrality was an interesting, uh, and it's come back in different forms, but the original network neutrality discussion was not so much about what network neutrality set out to accomplish as <clears throat> network neutrality as a value in and of itself. Although it was a means to an end to an open internet where you didn't need permission to innovate. And so I find it, I find it instructive to look at the cases where your idealism focuses more on the means than on the end. Where yes. your passion focuses more on the means than on the end. Because what we were really interested in uh, when we thought about network neutrality was this notion of an open and free internet where anyone could start a business. And there was a worry that if you could price different kinds of traffic differently, then that wouldn't remain, that wouldn't be there. But once you settle on the method to achieve your end or your goal, the method quickly risks becoming the value that you're protecting. Yeah, you you lose sight of the ultimate goal, and that's so. Is your ultimate goal uh, that more people should have access to the internet? Is it that more services should be available over the internet? But I think you're right. Defining it, the the network neutrality on itself is not the goal. The goal, I think, is the availability of the internet services, and then and then you 
you know, network neutrality being key to that becomes a hypothesis, but there are other hypotheses about what would deliver the same objectives. Um, but it's very hard to see that once you're down that track. And just to give you an example from my own social media experience, there was a kind of hypothesis early on that the way to uh, get politicians to understand social media and really engage with it was to show how influential it was at election time. <laughs> and, uh, and we set out and we were passionate and we had people who are very passionate who, who you know passionate about democracy and wanted yeah. to show look come online build your presence on my social media platform and you know you'll go out there and you'll engage your constituents you'll win more votes it'll be great and and I think to a certain extent that kind of worked and politicians got involved and engaged but then certain warning signs started flashing red to say Actually, policymakers are, are more concerned uh, about this now, and some of those concerns are really material, and, and they're actually producing all kinds of focus and attention on the company. People are, are saying it's too powerful, it's powerful in the wrong ways. Um, and at that point, it was really hard for these two reasons. The sunk cost, we, we've just hired a great big team to go and push social media in politics. Uh, so that's a sunk cost. <laughs> we don't want to just say that was a waste of money. And secondly, this identity question, we're now, we've identified ourselves with social media great for democracy. And it's really hard to step back from that and say, uh, you know, social media may be a threat to democracy or to accept that those people who believe it's a threat to democracy, that, that they've got any validity. And we then form into these sort of warring factions and, uh, and it's lost. And now at that point, you have lost sight of the ends. And, you know, the, the, the ends in that case, I think, were we've built a product that we think is going to change the world for the better. Yeah. Uh, that was really the key point. And we want policymakers to understand it because, because we want them to encourage it because we're all on the same side, making the world better through technology. And we've lost sight of all that. And now the end is how many politicians have I got online and how active are they? And you know, mm. all these different criteria that really aren't the, the main event um, and a huge inertia. Uh, a huge unwillingness to quit until, as you pointed out earlier, there was a crisis. And the crisis being that, you know, politicians started saying, oh, my God, uh, you're too powerful. And and this political stuff you're doing is one of the primary reasons I want to come along and regulate you. Uh, mm. And all of a sudden, then the companies like, oh, let's <coughs> grow back from that a little. Let's stop yeah. sending people out to live in the campaigns and so on. Yeah, it's an interesting example, too, because to some degree, what you wanted to accomplish there was to show that this can be useful for you. But but then again, when it became too useful, not just for you, but also for everybody else that was trying to, in some way, sway public opinion, then at that point, it sort of breaks down. And and, and it speaks to this question of, of putting in points in time where we really mm. step back, check, evaluate, and have a good sense of, you know, is this working or not? And I find that very rare that, yeah. that we actually have those check-ins where we go like and say, okay, is this really working now? And Duke has a special version of this that I find fascinating. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's the, sort of the kill criteria. What points do you say you're going to stop doing something? And actually that, that example you cited at the beginning, the first one of the climbing up Mount Everest, I mean, the, the thing there was before they set off, they knew what the right thing to do was, which is to say, look, if we've reached at this point by this time, uh, given the weather conditions and everything else, it is safe to continue to the summit. 
if we arrive later than this time, we have to turn back. The kill criteria is, have you reached there by this time on the clock? Mm. And uh, the example she gives us, they reached there. It was too late. A couple of them carried on. A couple of them turned back. The ones that turned back survived. The ones that carried on didn't. And then you can extend that to other areas. So you would look at something you're doing in policy. (laughs) If you've got the kill criteria, it would say, you know, we're going to invest a lot in lobbying for this particular thing. But uh, if that fails and the and the law has been drafted in the way we didn't want uh, by this date or, you know, with this level of support, then we're just going to stop. And I, again, mm. I've never seen anyone say that. I've just, just let it go, oh, if it's obvious now this thing has got this level of support, we just, you know, kill credit, we pull back. And we focus on a, in a different direction. And the real adventure is sort of setting this out up front. As long as you stick to it, <laughs> unlike some of those climbers, as long as you stick to it, is that it it, um, it, it, it sort of injects this dispassionate, cold calculation uh, back in at a time often when you are most heated. You know, you're most committed. You've you've just fought for that vote. You've just lost it. Uh, but that's when you're most fired up to keep fighting. Um, and yeah. if, you, if you predefine six months earlier and then you stick, you know, that if you were going to lose the vote by this much, you're going to walk away. That's when that criteria kicks in. Yeah. And it's, it's it, one way to think about this in public policy is that you should always have a resist slash shape point. You can resist the proposal for, you know, X amount of days or X amount of time. But when you reach a certain point, you should instead actively shift to shaping the proposal because the proposal is going to happen in some way or another. And uh, that's another very interesting failure mode that you often find in policy teams where they never shift into shape or they shift into shape so very, very late that the only thing they can shape is the very minutiae of a bill or a proposal of some kind. So this this notion that you should have those points set out in your projects is really interesting. And I think it's, it's a simple thing to try. Next time you're looking at a campaign, something agree a point at which you say okay we're not going to fight beyond this point we're going to shape beyond this point yeah. and uh, I, that's something that if more people did that i think they would be much more effective yeah and and to take um, you know the, the everest example again the weather and we've used this weather analogy before you know there's a certain point at which the weather is just going in the wrong direction and and again there's a temptation to fight the weather because because you know people back in headquarters want you to. So the rain clouds are gathering. People in headquarters go, your policy team, can't you make it sunny? And you go, yes, I'll make it sunny. And you go out and make it sunny. Or you try to make it sunny. But sometimes those storm clouds, they're not going to let up. You know, there's only one way this thing is going to go. Just like once a weather system has started, it's going to keep going. And if you can see that, you do need to go back and say, "I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm afraid I can't make it sunny. The rain's coming. Let's prepare for the rain. Let's start working on the umbrella <laughs> that we need yeah. when the rain comes, because that's much better effort than just continually going back saying "make it sunny, make it sunny." And that was very much the Everest thing, you know. It's you know the the laws of the sort of weather weather cycles on Everest mean that you you don't have enough time. You're going to get caught. You're literally going to freeze to death. Um, you can't cheat that. <laughs> Doesn't matter mm. how much you want it to be different; it won't be different. And sometimes in our world, the same applies. There's, there are massive forces, you know, taking taking place, and and there's just no way, however skilled or brilliant you think you are, that you can you can fight that weather system. 
And it also, I think one of the things this really brings home is that we need to be so much better at cutting the work up in pieces. So instead of saying, we now are going to wage a campaign for issue X, and then saying, here is the start of the campaign, and here is, you know, when this is enacted into law, and we're going to waste, you know, the campaign is going to be all through. We should say, okay, this is a series of bets. We're going to make a series of different bets here. And, and interestingly, Yanni Duke has also written a book called Thinking in Bets. It's quite good. Yeah. <laughs> and for each of these bets, we're going to evaluate where we are. And if the bets are not going our way, we're going to change this. So cut up the work. Cut up the work assiduously into pieces with evaluation points. And that's actually not that hard to do because there are a lot of natural points where you can look at, you know, how this, did this look when it when it came out of committee? How will it look now? What's the actual option we have going forward? And then trying to cut up it, the work in pieces that can be evaluated often. I would guess that on average, we would benefit as a profession to have much smaller work packages and evaluate at least 10x as many times as we currently do when we're in a project or a campaign. I mean, I think it's a really good point. And, and again, there's often this... Um... Sort of debate internally. I think we've talked about it as well. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of your policy team or your communications team? Actually, that they work in similar ways, and you tend to come up with these very big, grand metrics about the way shaping which, the environment, yeah, yes. and the political climate, and all this stuff. Um, and 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 that's natural, and that's instinctive. Stopping a piece of legislation, or uh, uh, but a lot of those are either t- too fudgy to be properly measured or too grand to ever be achieved uh and that's in itself quite miserable so i think to set yourself a series of much smaller goals you know if you just think the equivalent from the sort of software engineering side of things uh, um you know yes you could have an overall goal to say i want to build the best website ever that everybody absolutely loves and that's great and we're, we are a little bit in that world but um I want my website to be loading, you know, faster than this number of milliseconds by a month's time. I want it to have this number of users. These sort of micro steps are actually much, much better. And so I think in policy world, we kind of, we're still in the, I want to have the best website in the world mode too often and not enough in a, well, my measurable goal is X, Mm. Uh, you know, it's something much smaller. Uh, and we're going to deem success that we achieved a bunch of small things. Uh, and, and again, I can see that it's an identity problem. You know, policy mm-hmm. people, I could maybe some of them listening go, uh, you know, I'm not in it to do small things. Uh, yeah. to, but you, but you are. It's the, the success is the cumulative effect of the small things, the cumulative and compounding effect of small yeah. things. And so this is where we we had another model that I quite liked, and I think is is also really effective to use as a mental model in your mind. And it's this notion of actually having an investment portfolio of different projects in policy. And when you do that, if you're investing in a company, for example, uh, what you do is that you put milestones up and say, if this company has achieved this by this time, I'm willing to continue investing in it. And if it hasn't, I'm going to have to be disciplined and say that I lost the money. Yeah. And it's really hard because most investors will go like, well, they just need another couple of months in order to do this. Or they, you know, they're on the right way. They're just not quite there. They're not hitting the criteria. So the difficult thing here, I think you came back to this before, is discipline. Uh, this notion of self-discipline and sort of saying, okay, we didn't achieve what we set out to achieve, so now we're going to kill this. Um, is there something in the organization, so you talk about the identity, but is there also something in organizational psychology that doesn't reward quitting? 
Do you think there is a problem in the way that we set up our incentive systems, our performance reviews, etc.? I mean, I can't remember a performance review where I, that I've read that says that uh, you know Carl was really good at this. He knew when to quit and abandoned the project early. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right because I think the um, the problem is people would question your judgment, and and this is I think maybe particularly hard in policy world because you're being paid effectively because you're supposed to have good judgment and you understand the world you're in so it's very hard to say you know i told you that we should be doing x we should be pushing politicians onto the platform and and you know that you've spent a lot of money on that based on my judgment and my recommendation i am now changing my recommendation and and i think that was not the right thing to do and we should be doing something completely different that's really quite hard and i think it may i mean it's hard enough if you're it, uh, in business and you've created a startup but you, you maybe can survive you can say well yes I had idea A and now I'm pivoting to idea B and actually Andy Duke again in the book talks about the origins of Slack as a tool that came out of another project that failed so you get these certainly for entrepreneurs you get this uh, notion of you've got to have several failures to be successful I've never heard that applied to policy people. Yeah, and the notion of the pivot. I think the pivot yeah, yeah. is they, is really they screwed up four competition inquiries, but they'll yeah. get the next one right. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's not something you often well. hear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you would hear that on the tech side. Yeah, they 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 built four products that failed, and the fifth one was great, and they're overall a success. So it is that we do apply different criteria. I think sometimes in in different domains. Yeah, and we're very good at telling success stories, but not very good at telling success stories that contain quitting. Yeah. And so it, it, the pivot is not a major narrative device in most stories that you will read about public policy or about politics even. I think this is where it's really related to politics because politics can be very much the same. And if we say we have sunk cost and kill criteria problem in public policy, I would argue that politics has even more of it. So if you look at, at the political side, it's it's hard to find politicians who stand up and say, "Oh, I proposed this, but you know, in the light of new evidence, I've updated my beliefs, and this was the wrong thing to do, and we should now do this instead." So, is there a relationship between the political world and the policy world here that plays out? I, I think that's really interesting. Is it? I think that's fascinating. Actually, now when I think of some of the the failures, I think some of the failures um, that I would own <laughs> in terms of trying to to get politicians to move in a new direction was I underestimated their willingness to quit. And they've gone out in public and said, we're going to regulate, you know, tech companies this way. And I have made the assumption that somehow I can, through force of logic, move them in a different direction. But for all the reasons we've just been discussing, the politician has got sunk cost. They've invested in you know, drafting the law one way, they've very, very strong identity now associated with it. They've championed doing X. The last thing they want is some, you know, idiot from a tech company coming along and telling them why. And actually, she also talks about that. Actually, in some ways, the, the worse an idea, <laughs> the more that people will sort of hang on to it. She talks about pe- people who believe in, you know, these sort of millennial cults where the world's going to come to an end. And you would think that when the world doesn't come to an end, they would go, oh, I was wrong. I'll I'll quit the cult. I'll move on. Actually, a lot of them stay with the cult and create more and more sort of fantastical rationales for why the cult was right all along. And and the the world is actually going to end in another three months or another six months. 
And that actually echoes, I think, some of the political conversations you and I have had where we've gone along and and thought we'd won on the base of logic and actually only reinforced, in some cases, a politician's determination to stick with the course that they originally set out and, and to trash us even more for for having tried to divert them from it. And I think even wider than that, I actually think that's what's rewarded in politics. Persistence or grit is rewarded much more than quit. So it's not just that we feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about having quit something. If you think about sort of what is really rewarded at the election earns, sort of in the elections, it is persistence. And and that's a, that's a fascinating psychological phenomenon too. We're sort of, oh, he's not a quitter. Or we'll say, you know, they're driving their, uh, position so strongly, even if that position may be wrong. So maybe there is something in the political system that sort of echoes through uh, everything down to policy, where persistence and grit is valued as signs of strength rather than uh, the opposite. So, so where is the root node of this problem, the root cause? What could we do if we wanted to change it? We can put kill criteria in for policy. And I actually do think, this is interesting, I do think that if you're in a world where people are entirely focused on grit, you can win by adopting a strategy that allows you to quit. So I think, you know, if you're stuck in this world, it can be even more important to understand how you structure your own project so that you can walk away from them without getting stuck in sunk cost or other kinds of biases. Yeah, so I think to a large degree, the, the, the answer, if there is some, and the guidance is really that this is an unconscious bias problem. And, and actually, a lot of the benefit comes from surfacing it. So, so I think once, you, once you've uh, uh, sort of internalized and, and, yes, have some techniques and, and methods for uh, making sure that you stick to it, but once you've internalized the fact that you, you are going to behave in this way, you're going to behave in this very dogged way, and that, and you and you recognise that your instincts to see doggedness as positive may get you into trouble. Uh, you may even have done it a few times, like <laughs> been around around the track a few times, yeah, yeah, been in that rodeo. So, so you may have done it a few times. I think once you've got that, and then both for yourself, and I think particularly for them, for your teams, to send out very clear signals to your teams to say. You know, it's okay uh, to say that your judgment was wrong on something. In fact, you'd rather say your judgment is wrong and cut your losses than have somebody just keep persisting uh, down a track. That that so um, I don't know if you if you, uh, uh, if you ever go sailing, <laughs> a sailing river, and and in sailing, when the wind starts blowing more strongly, you need to reef the sails in. You need to kind of. Uh, reduce the sale area or you'll get in trouble and they have a saying which is like if you're asking the question should i be reefing the sale that means it's too late like you only ever ask yeah. too late. and it's some, there's something in that to say something like most of the time when you've been doing one of these things that's going wrong you have got that inkling you're asking if you should reef the sale you've got you know uh, uh but you don't vocalize it you just keep going um and so maybe again saying to your teams Look, when you have doubts, bring them to me at the first stage. Uh, yeah, and I'm not going to. Are you going to be rewarded for bringing them to me? Right. Yeah, yeah, and 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 actually, and she puts this in the book though. 
weirdly, and I may push back <laughs> because yeah, I yeah. don't. So you have people where the person who's built a startup has gone back to the investors and say, I'm going to pull the plug while the investors are still happy to fund it because they they haven't sort of got to the point where they're not close enough to have the doubt. So, yeah, somebody in your team comes to you and says, I think our strategy is wrong. It may be if you're the the manager, the lead that team, you're going to push back and go, no, 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 we should keep going. And it's But it's working out a dynamic that allows you then to explore that. So partly you as the manager also need to agree that it's time to reef. <laughs> you need to know it's time to to kind of haul in. Um, but But creating those mechanisms where, you listen to that voice that says, mm, you know, maybe time to quit, service it, talk it through, um, and develop mechanisms for for uh, 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 making a change. So that may be a, a case uh, where you need to agree the kill criteria. So I think you do, because yeah, if um, you have that beforehand, you will know that if you push back, you push back against better judgment, because you know what the kill criteria are. Yeah, but it may be at the time you form it, somebody in your team comes and you know we've been lobbying against that law. I actually think, you know, the weather's changed. We're not going to win it. And and there is the manager. The conversation is, so what should be our kill criteria? We're going to kill it today. Uh, it's the first time you've raised it, but we'll agree together that if it reaches this stage, uh, when we speak again in a month's time, we're going to quit. And that's actually easier in some ways for both of you uh, than it is. Because then you've agreed a new point where you can evaluate together. You've you've added the dispassionate bit in, the cold calculating bit into something which is otherwise, you know, they're they're maybe too scared to say it to you. And when they do say it to you, you, you're maybe like you know feeling bullish and and you're actually maybe a bit scared because you're gonna have to go back to someone else you know you you're gonna have to go up the chain and it's like you know whose job is it to tell mark zuckerberg that the legislation that he doesn't like that your his policy team is not going to do anything about it because they've decided to quit Um, (laughs) yes exactly quit the company but quit that particular exercise yes and they would very much like to be rewarded for it oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) there's another thing here that i i found fascinating in in duke's book and that was uh, she has this. I, I don't. I don't think I remember the stat exactly. But there is a difference between amateur poker players and professional yes. poker players, in that professional poker players play much fewer hands. They fold more often. I think it's like three out of ten they play, whereas seven out of ten is what the amateur plays. And that to me suggests another uh, version or angle on the quit issue. And that is, as a policy team. Do you say, yes, we'll fight this bill too often? Do you take on too much? Do you yeah. sort of have too many running campaigns? Should you really just play three out of the 10 hands you were dealt in the legislative space rather than playing seven out of 10 hands? Uh, I think that's a really good point. That struck me again when I looked at it. I was just, I had exactly the same thought. That, um, I think there were two, two sort of things going on. One is... This, this, just as a policy team, the idea is oh, I need to be busy, busy, and across everything. Uh, and I used to sometimes think that, look, you know, if another company's dealing with it and is closer to an issue, just let them get on with it. But there's this idea of no, no it, you know, we've got to be across everything, or we will look bad, and a certain amount of kind of FOMO uh, going on. Uh, uh, you're not, you're not going to be part of that thing, but. But I actually think, yes, you could be, in many cases, a more effective policy team if you said these two or three things we'll focus on. There's five or six others that are interesting, um, but I'm not going to deal with them. Interestingly, when I when I started, I think you started um, uh, Google back in the day, we started in much smaller teams. 
yeah. where that that was necessary. Like you just didn't, you know, you they had like three people in thirty countries and three hundred pieces of legislation, and you weren't going to cover everything. So you you by uh, force of of resources, you had to sort of be narrower. Then, as you build your policy teams up, you start to get the idea and cover everything. You start then to justify back to your management. Oh, you you know, you gave me the extra headcount. Uh, because I said I need to cover everything. Now I need to go back and tell you I am covering everything in order to prove that the headcount was effective. Ah, you know, and you and you can end up sometimes with a bigger team that is less effective because it's now spread too thinly. Yes, uh, and if you had taken that same headcount and put it on the projects you were already working, you might have been much more effective. And I think I think there is a trick here, which is really figuring out to your point, where on the margin can I make the most difference? And it, it, it has two steps to it. One is that you have to understand what you uniquely as a corporation and as a team can do. So you have to figure out what's the difference that you bring that can then make a difference in the case that you're looking at. And if you're really honest about this, it's probably, I would argue, around a tenth of the current projects that you're running where you have a difference that makes a difference. And, and I, I really think that if we were much more uh, parsimonious about the choices we make in terms of taking something on, we could also be much more effective. But there is, there is almost like, I think you said it well, there's, there's a need to be seen to be doing something. And not just, and this is interesting, not just vis-a-vis the company itself, because I think there is some of that happening too, where you sort of want to show that, yes, we're working on that. Yes, we're working on that. Because you never want to be able to say no or you never want to have to say, no, uh, we don't believe that's important because there's always someone who thinks it's important. Uh, but but the other thing that's, that's at play here is that in many ways, people who are um, in our profession are also evaluated for, you know, by their peers for turning up in these discussions. And that yeah. becomes an important part. So you, you want to be present in all of the contexts where all of your peers are present, because what if you're not there? And that turns out to be the really important thing. And so again, it's hard to make those choices to say no, to quit all of those projects, because you're quitting a context, you're quitting a story, you're quitting a, a sort of, in, in some ways you're quitting um, a network. Yes, and, and if we add in the temporal dimension, this becomes even worse. Again, I'm sure you have the same experience that you you get involved in a bunch of things. You're right, your your peers uh, can see you involved in them. Hopefully they're saying, oh, you're doing a terribly good job on X. Uh, and, and To your you, face, yes. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah to your face. And, um, and, you, and you're doing a very good job as well. And so you're, you're sort of, you're now doing those things. They've become part of your identity but it's cumulative uh, hmm. and you start to become less and less effective sometimes because you're piling up more and more stuff uh, and you're not quitting the things that are now no longer as important as the new things that have come along. So again, other strategies, the sort of one in, one out. And a strategy I used to have I mentioned before was literally breaking my time down uh, and saying, you know, for each direct report I have, that's going to take up at least two hours, maybe two hours to half a day a week, depending on the nature of the relationship. For each working group I'm on, that's going to take up this number of hours for each policy issue and so on. And and really doing that job properly to work out cumulatively how many hours a week. And if you've if you've come up with 
you know, 70, 80 hours of work a week. Uh, I mean, people say they do that much. I think very mm. actually do. You're probably going to be doing maximum like 50. Uh, At least if you want to do some quality in your work, yeah. right? But, but again, even trying to get 70 hours worth of tasks into 50 hours time, you're lying to yourself that you're doing it well. So better to have got rid of 20, got, you know, have fewer direct reports, be on fewer working groups, be involved in uh, uh, fewer things is going to be better. So you can, you can get it as close as you can, the amount of commitment <laughs> to the amount of time. So re- supply and demand are close to each other. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I certainly experienced that. And I suspect others, if they're listening to this, will perhaps if they go away and do the exercise, may find they're doing the same thing. They're lying to themselves on a weekly basis. And by doing that, by, you know, if a direct report needs two hours of support a week, but because you've done this underestimation, you're only giving them one hour of support. But that's not effective. That's not productive. No. Um, storing and, up trouble. And this is actually possible to connect back to this theme of quitting. Because to some extent, when you fill a 50-hour realistic week with 70 hours of work, there's no space to review. There's no space to pull back and say, this is working and this isn't. Because what you'll be doing is that all of your tasks will seamlessly melt together into one big, messy <laughs> network of stuff. Yeah. And then as you're sort of as you're going across that big, messy network of stuff, you've never allowed yourself the breaks where you can say, should I be doing this or not? And one other thing that I find really helpful and that I think should be practiced more is to put really, literally put in your calendar reset moments. Say, okay, this is a reset day. I've blocked off the entire day. I'm going to sit down, look at all of my projects, and at least 30% of them, I'm sure I'm not going to invest in anymore. So you have these points where you actively review what you're doing. And that's a part of, of being able to quit. Because if there's never any space for you to ask the question, should I do this? Should I quit? Then you won't quit. And so it's almost like you have to design breathing space to see what you abandon and what you keep. Yeah, I entirely agree. So that evaluation time is not time wasted. Uh, and, and it's actually, um, we're both Sherlock Holmes fans, aren't we? And I yes. love the, the Sherlock Holmes sort of two-pipe problem and three-pipe problem. There are, there are problems that require you to, in his case, smoke several pipes of, I assume, tobacco in order to get to the conclusion. <laughs> and a lot of these problems are kind of two and three pipe problems they can't you can't just sit down and and do it you've got to really really think about it and argue backwards and forwards um i think particularly quitting decisions you know i'm on this working group i like doing it uh but is it really valuable if i stop doing it who else would do it what else would happen what would actually you know all of that is a three pipe problem (laughs) in, in a lot of cases so it's got to be a serious amount of time uh otherwise what you do is either you you don't make the decision. And again, it says that status quo is still a decision, not quitting is a decision. Critical. It is. So you don't, you, you make a decision to keep doing it by not finding the time to, to really think through whether or not you should be doing it. Or you sort of um, quit on a whim, uh, you know, in a panic uh, rather than in a planful way, and then end up 
often bouncing around and not not really properly quitting because you didn't have a plan for quitting. Yeah, exactly. Because it, there, there, it's worthwhile pointing out here that there's a difference between quitting and failing. Because yeah. quitting is consciously making the decision that this is not where I'm going to invest more of my time, resources, efforts, and passion. Failing, however, is not getting even to that point, but just dropping things because you no longer have the ability to perform them at a certain level. And I, I think quitting actually is the more uh, elegant way of of reprioritizing what you're doing. But I think failing is what you end up doing when you don't quit. It's not as if not quitting leads to you being persistent and successful across all of your projects. No, you're going to fail at some of them and you can't even control which ones they are. So you have suddenly injected a certain amount of randomness into the process so there are some of these projects that are simply not going to work out because you didn't give yourself the time and the ones that you should have been quitting are eating your time and so the way you fail now is random Mm. Uh, one part of quitting is, is sort of figuring out okay where do i actually really want to stop before i fail yeah. And I think that's that's also really important. The the alternative to stepping back, reviewing, consciously rebalancing your portfolio, etc., that I have seen some people use, consciously or unconsciously, is is catastrophic quitting, where you just quit everything you're doing uh, once a year, and you say, "I'm going to like from zero replan all of my priorities. Nothing gets across the line uh, automatically, but I have to choose everything I do." That requires much more discipline, I think, than rebalancing your project, because it's really hard not just to let legacy projects sort of roll over into the new year. Yeah, I think the risk of that is you may also have spent half the year doing the wrong things because you, you've allowed them to accumulate. So what were you doing the few months before you do the catastrophic <laughs> quitting exercise? Yeah. You know, and so there's a risk. It's an excuse then to, to let things sort of build up. So I think the planful stage one is good. I'm just thinking as you were speaking there, they're, they're uh, um, you know the sign of a grown-up uh, relationship between a manager and uh, and somebody in their team is when the manager can say, "So I really think you should think about quitting this thing before you fail." Uh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that is seen, but I mean, genuinely, that's seen as a kind of positive coaching yeah. experience because you should be able to have that kind of conversation and not and not all get upset about it or. You know, uh, and maybe the employee says it back to the manager. You know, you're not managing me very well, so I think you need to quit employing me because you're failing at it uh, yeah. because you've got too many direct reports. And and that would be a very kind of healthy dynamic if everyone had that kind of perspective. Easier said than done. <laughs> Easier said than done for sure, but it would be very healthy. And I think a, a version of this that is uh, should often be used, at least, is is this notion that if you're working on your top three things and your manager steps in and says, "Hey, could you do this thing too?" Your question back, you should always feel empowered to have your question back be, "Which of these three things do I drop and quit?" Yeah, and I think. That's that's something that uh, it's good advice from Stephen Covey, uh, you know, in his book Seven Habits of uh, Productive Successful People, or whatever it's named, and and it's and it's and it's quite powerful uh, because then as a manager you're helped to see that there are these other things happening that you may not be aware of or you may not have had at the top of your mind, and so you can say, okay you're right, those three were actually priorities. I'll go see if somebody else can do this, but it doesn't qualify as one that sort of hits one out of the door, which which actually gives us another way to approach quitting, which is quitting is also defining a maximum carrying capacity. To your point about the time, sort of looking at the time and time boxing and figuring out, okay, how much time do I actually have? 
And if you also define uh, carrying capacity, where you say, you look, I, I have three things I'm going to get done this quarter. These are the three things. And if anyone wants me to do anything else, they'll have to help me understand which one of these things should I drop. So uh, by restricting the available capacity very clearly and publicly and articulating that to colleagues and teams, you, you can sort of build quitting in if somebody wants you to reprioritize which is also an interesting approach yeah it's, it's, it's there's sort of rationing so maybe maybe needs to write a book ration which is the other side yeah. there's, there's the good. quitting and you're right it's rationing is it really interesting um you know i'm i'm doing this recording from the house of lords where i occasionally hang out in the in the british parliament and uh, uh we come to the end of a legislative session when you reach the end of legislation uh, there, you know, there may be twenty things that people want changing in the law, but you look, your carrying capacity point, you can you can really only get through four or five, and you have to work out the ra- you know you ration, you have a ration number of changes, and then you have to quit the other fifteen or sixteen that you can't get through. And there's a there's a whole process. That, but there's a forcing function there. You know, the yeah. law has to be passed by this date. And we're forced then uh, to, to really kind of figure out what the priorities are. And there, there are conversations, very sort of complex conversations between all the parties about what they want to prioritize and what they want to get through. And and again, maybe there's some mechanism there that, that could usefully be read across into a business to say, uh, uh, how do we force uh, everyone to get together and take the 20 things they want to do down to the four or five that's realistic? Um, yeah, and be rationing what we can actually do. There's a, there's a. I think you probably heard this too. But there's a great story here about Warren Buffett and how he helps his CEOs prioritize. He sort of says, write the ten most important things that you have to do. Circles the top three, if I remember this anecdote correctly, and says those are the things you should do. And then he circles the other seven, and he says, well, you know what this is? This is your at no cost do list. <laughs> you are not allowed to do any of these things before these three are done, because this is what's going to detract from your focus. This is what's going to suck your energy if you even allow it to sort of enter into your daily practice. So by identifying the 10 most important things, saying the top three are the ones you're going to do, you also gave yourself a do not do list. The yeah. do not do list is a version of quitting in a sense, because it sort of gives you this very strong instruction that you cannot do anything that you thought was really important until you get the most important done. Yeah, because they obviously yes, it's really, those are the things you're obviously attracted to, the yes. things that you're most interested in. Which so is I think that's that's an interesting solution. So, uh, in, in, not intended to be a downbeat episode, but mm. it is really important to know when to quit, and it's an art that I think is very hard because of some built-in dynamics in politics where persistence is often rewarded. But the recommendation from us would be: if you're working across policy projects, cut them up into smaller portions, put in kill criteria, and regularly feel that you have the mandate to say. I'm working on this. If you want me to do something else, tell me what I should quit. Those are sort of some simple ways in which you can bring the insights from from Annie Duke's excellent book, by the way, that we warmly recommend people read uh, into your daily public policy work. Yes, absolutely recommend. Quit the power of knowing when to walk away. Uh, with yes. and we should probably follow that advice and then quit this session so we can find this <laughs> <laughs> now is yes. now is the time to walk now away in 2003 yes, yes, 2002 <laughs> anyway uh, <laughs> so so we can find this episode on your website which is www.regulate.tech thanks and we hope to soon have you with us again <laughs>